0: to A Great Big City News, Episode 54. Today, the FDNY's Black Sunday disaster, and Captain Sullenberger lands on the Hudson River. Visit agreatbigcity.com slash support to learn how to support New York City local news and allow us to keep bringing you this podcast. Individuals can make a one-time or monthly contribution, and businesses can place a banner ad on the website or a variety of audio ads on the podcast. Visit agreatbigcity.com/slash advertising to see pricing and learn more. I am Trace Gilton, founder of A Great Big City. This week marks the one-year anniversary of A Great Big City's Podcast. I personally enjoy podcasts and have wanted to create something for a great big city using audio for a long time but one year ago I basically just added the podcast to the website on a whim. It's been a fun journey producing the podcast and learning the ins and outs of recording and audio production, but I still feel like there's so much more that the podcast is capable of and I look forward to growing the project even more in the year 2020. Looking back on the past year, I think my favorite episode was probably episode 48, The True Horrors of New York City where a mysterious poltergeist seemed to infiltrate the podcast for a special Halloween episode. It's hard to tell how people actually find the podcast, and you can email us and let us know if you'd like to help out in that area. But the most popular episode for the past year was episode 44, when I talked about Diana Nyad's swim around the entire Manhattan Island in 1975 and the deadly plane crash of Yankees pitcher Corey Little with his flight instructor when they tried to perform a turn over top the East River. And coincidentally, that was also the episode that was the nine-year anniversary of A Great Big City. So it's good to see that it got a lot of attention. So with A Great Big City approaching our tenth year, let's find out what happened this week in New York City history. Eleven years ago, on January 15, 2009, Captain Sullenberger lands U.S. Air Flight 1549 in the Hudson River, an event that would become known as the Miracle on the Hudson. An investigation determined that the engine had been damaged after striking a flock of Canada geese on takeoff from LaGuardia Airport. Sullenberger then had to make the quick decision on whether to turn back to the airport, but decided he couldn't make it back in time, and instead immediately prepared for splashdown in the Hudson River the safest option to land when faced with both New Jersey and New York on both sides. Sullenberger told ABC News in an interview last year ahead of the 10th anniversary that during pilot training, flight simulators did not simulate a water landing and he had only received classroom training on how to handle that situation. Upon hitting the water, Sullenberger and co-pilot Jeff Skiles simultaneously said, that wasn't as bad as I thought. Here's some of the flight controller audio from that day. Cactus 1549, turn left heading
1: 270. Uh, this is uh, Cactus 1539, it both returning back towards LaGuardia.
0: Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading up uh, 220. 220. Tower, stop you to park. who has got emergency returning it 1529, he, he, uh, bird strike, he lost all engine. he
1: lost the thrust in the engines, he's returning immediately. Cactus 1529, which engines? He lost thrust in both engines, he said. Got it. Cactus 1529, we can get it for you. Do you want to try to land 1913? We're unable, we may end up in the Hudson.
0: After the plane hit the water, commuter ferries that crossed the Hudson River in that area were redirected to pick up the passengers and the crew from the downed flight. All 155 people were safely rescued, with only a few people with serious injuries. An official with the NTSB later described it as the most successful ditching in aviation history. And Captain Sullenberger and the crew of the plane would go on to receive numerous commendations and awards. And when Mayor Bloomberg presented Captain Sullenberger with a key to the city during a special ceremony, He also included a replacement copy of a library book that Captain Sullenberger had lost in his own luggage. The book was titled Just Culture, Balancing Safety and Accountability, and the library ensured the captain that the late fees would be waived. Nineteen years ago, on January 17, 2001, a 2.4 magnitude earthquake strikes the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Although most of the earthquakes you'll find listed on the history pages at a great big city happened nearly a hundred years ago, this is one of the more modern earthquakes of measurable size that happened in the New York City region and also happened within the city itself. The earthquake was actually centered quite near Gracie Mansion, the mayor's residence, on the Upper East Side and even though it measured as a light impact on the modified mercalli intensity scale of, of earthquake severity residents on the upper east side and even across the river in long island city felt the shaking here's some audio from the new york 1 news archive of interviews with eyewitnesses at the time
1: it was like boom da, da. that pretty much sums it up the streets of long island city are calm now but around 7:30 wednesday morning there was a whole lot of shaking going on Residents took a wild stab at what they thought the cause might be. I thought that maybe the boiler in my building blew up. Something, you know, maybe like a plane was crashing. It was so strong, so scary. I thought it was a dumpster passing by. Really, I never knew it was an earthquake. Oh, it was a little earthquake, all right. 2.4 on the Richter.
0: Notably, the earthquake struck seven years to the day after the massively destructive 6.7 magnitude Northridge earthquake in California that damaged 40,000 buildings in Los Angeles. A similar small earthquake would hit the Upper West Side in October of 2001, just nine months after the January quake. Although earthquakes are rare in and around the city, more recently we have seen the shaking that can occur from the earthquake that happened in Virginia then reached all the way to the city back in 2011, which was a 5.8 magnitude. According to the New York City Department of Emergency Management, If an earthquake does hit the city, you should drop to the floor and cover your head and neck with your arms. Take cover underneath a solid piece of furniture or next to an interior wall. Do not stand inside a doorway, because you likely won't be able to remain standing in a more severe earthquake, and it won't provide protection from falling or flying objects. When the shaking begins, hold on to something solid immediately, as losing your footing and falling over, may cause a head injury that would be worse than being hit by debris. If you use a wheelchair, move to an interior corner of the room or under a doorway and lock the wheels of the chair. If you're outside, go to an open area, away from trees, poles, and any buildings where debris may fall. If you're in bed or unable to move, you should cover yourself with padded objects like blankets and pillows to protect yourself from falling debris. After an earthquake, remain calm and be prepared for possible aftershocks. If you're in need of assistance and have a phone, call 911. And if you see downed power lines, smoke rising from electrical connections in the street, or if you smell natural gas possibly leaking from a broken pipe, call 911 and they'll alert the proper utility companies. If you're trapped in rubble, use anything available to make noise so that rescuers can find you. Hit a pipe or yell in groups of three to distinguish your distress call from other surrounding noises. And once you're in a safe spot, start monitoring local media like radio, television, and, just like during the 2011 earthquake, a great big city will be there to provide updates. Sixty-three years ago on January 21st, 1957, the Mad Bomber is arrested after planting at least 33 bombs across the city that injured 15 people. George Metesky attacked various public locations across the city for 16 years with small bombs, justifying his crimes as retribution for an injury he received while working for Con Ed in 1931. His bombs were particularly devious as they were small and planted in busy public areas like Grand Central, Penn Station, and Radio City Music Hall. About half of the bombs successfully exploded and thankfully caused no deaths, but did injure many people, in addition to the terror caused by small bombs that could seemingly show up anywhere. Metesky was identified by a Con Ed clerk named Alice Kelly who had been searching employee records for someone who matched the police profile, based on details revealed in the bomber's threatening letters. After his arrest, he was found incompetent to stand trial and was committed to a mental hospital until 1973, after which he was released and he returned to his home in Waterbury, Connecticut, where he died 20 years later at the age of 90. Fifty years ago on January 22, 1970, the first Boeing 747 enters commercial service on a route from JFK Airport to London Heathrow. Pan Am Airlines was one of the first to place orders for the new, larger aircraft and began their rollout with the christening of an airplane in Washington, D.C. by First Lady Pat Nixon. Planes were put on display at airports for a few days for the public to see, then the first flight took off for London but not without a few glitches that modern travelers can relate to. Engine problems before takeoff caused a two-hour delay, after which all passengers had to transfer to another 747 that was brought in to complete the flight. After Pan Am filed for bankruptcy, a farewell party was held at JFK featuring the plane 32 years after it entered service. Here's some video from May 1992 from a News 12 report at the scene of the farewell party and the history books news 12's carolyn gussoff reports that the last 747
1: was fittingly also pan am's first you'd think they were saying goodbye to an old friend but for many that's exactly what this airplane is it was the first commercial 747 to come off boeing's assembly line and it's pan american airlines last 747 flight that's why it's near and dear to so many Everybody here put a lot of sweat into this airplanes, and to come to an end like this, it's hard, very hard. This is what it was all about, getting it into
0: the air and keeping it going and making a name for Pan American and taking people wherever they wanted to go and the safety factor involved. And this airplane seen better days, and so did the company, and now this is the end. And. You know, it's, it's just like breaking up a marriage after 50 years. It's not an easy thing to let go of.
1: Former Pan Am workers and the few who still work for the bankrupt airline came to bid farewell to not only their first 747, but also an era. It was an era that began in 1970 when Pan Am's legendary founder, Juan Tripp, gave Boeing its first contract for 747s. Pan Am employees will tell you that was the beginning of truly modern aviation. Between... Him-
0: Fifteen years ago on January 23, 2005, the FDNY suffers Black Sunday when three firefighters are killed and four are injured in two separate fires. It was the deadliest day for the FDNY since the September 11th attacks. In the Bronx at 236 East 178th at Grand Concourse, an early morning three-alarm fire erupted in a building containing illegally converted apartments. The frigid temperatures caused difficulties with frozen hydrants and fire hoses. When the fire flashed through an apartment door, firefighters had no escape and jumped from the building. Firefighters Curtis Mayron and John Ballew were killed by the fall, and four others were severely injured. The firefighters' deaths renewed interest in a safety device that had been designed for those exact evacuation procedures but had been discontinued by the FDNY in the year 2000. It was still carried by one of the firefighters that survived the jump. Over the next year, the safety rope device was tested and issued to every firefighter. Later that day in the second fire, temperatures became too high as a group of firefighters were investigating a basement fire on Jerome Street in East New York and Richard T. Sclafani was killed in the blaze. Thankfully, it's rare to see an FDNY death, but the fire department sees an increase in fires around this time of year and they're much more deadly for inhabitants of buildings. Candles, holiday decorations, and electric heaters cause an increase in home fires during the winter, and the FDNY asks that all residents take precautions to inspect fireplaces, smoke alarms, and decorations for any potential hazards. Unfortunately, the past week has seen a spate of deadly fires, with three occurring during just 30 minutes across the city. Although two of those fires are currently under investigation as possibly suspicious, a variety of sources may ignite a fire, including electrical problems both within the walls and electrical sockets, electrical devices that malfunction, or even the extension cords that may fray in the middle and catch nearby fabric on fire. And 105 years ago on January 25th, 1915, Alexander Graham Bell places the first transcontinental long-distance telephone call from New York to San Francisco. While long-distance lines had been installed between cities since the late 1800s, this was the first coast-to-coast call made possible by 4,750 miles of connected telephone wire. The final connection was made on the Nevada and Utah state line on June 17, 1914, and AT&T President Theodore Vail successfully transmitted his voice across the country in July 1914. To reveal the new accomplishment, Bell performed a phone call six months later from the 15th floor of the telephone building at 15 Day Street in Lower Manhattan all the way to San Francisco, where the Panama-Pacific International Exposition was taking place. With Bell in New York and his partner Thomas Watson in San Francisco, they proceeded to reenact the same exchange they had first performed 38 years earlier when perfecting the telephone by communicating between floors of their Boston boarding house. Except this time when Bell called out with his famous phrase for Watson to come here. Watson joked that it would take a week for him to arrive. The signal was a single line open loop between New York, Washington, D.C., Jekyll Island in Georgia, and Boston allowing many participants during the call, including President Woodrow Wilson from Washington, D.C., and AT&T President Theodore Vail from Jekyll Island, Georgia, where he was recovering from a leg injury. The great distance was made possible by vacuum tubes called audions that amplified the signal as it traveled across the country, and approximately 1,500 AT&T employees were stationed along the loop of wire on the day of the demonstration, standing ready to repair any damage. After the debut, AT&T offered the transcontinental telephone line for business use, charging $20.70 for the first three minutes, equivalent to about $515 today, since the one nationwide phone line could only carry one call at a time. A quick look through some of the Great Big City history. Two years ago, Governor Cuomo had pledged that the state would fund the reopening of the Statue of Liberty during a federal government shutdown, which would otherwise have closed the island to visitors. Signs were posted at Battery Park that said the ferries would still carry passengers near the Statue of Liberty, but no one would have been allowed to enter the actual island park. The island would be reopened by January 22, 2018, at a price of $65,000 per day. The New York government had made a similar agreement in 2013 during a 16-day federal shutdown, and the state government would go on to fund the statue's opening during the second government shutdown of 2018, from December 2018 to January 2019, the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. And one year ago, we covered a Quinnipiac poll of New Yorkers that said 65% supported legalizing small amounts of marijuana, but that 70% also responded that they wouldn't try it even if it was legal. Both New York and New Jersey have attempted to move forward with marijuana legalization bills, but still remains illegal for recreational use in both states. The Great Big City has been running a 24-hour news feed since 2010, but the AGBC News Podcast is just getting started and we need your support. The Great Big City is built on a dedication to explaining what is happening and how it fits into the larger history of New York, which means thoroughly researching every topic and avoiding clickbait headlines to provide a straightforward, honest, and factual explanation of the news. Individuals can make a monthly or one-time contribution at greatbigcitycom slash support, And local businesses can have a lasting impact by supporting local news while promoting products or services directly to interested customers listening to this podcast. Visit agreatbigcity.com slash advertising to learn more. A Great Big City is more than just a news website. Every evening, just before sundown, A Great Big City checks the Empire State Building's lighting schedule and sends out a notification if the tower's lighting will be lit in special colors for a holiday or a celebration. Follow A Great Big City on social media to receive the alerts. Park of the Day Church Triangle at Castle Hill Avenue, Watson Avenue, and the Cross Bronx Expressway in the Bronx. Church Triangle is a simple green space in the city, and today it looks very much like it did in 1925. A grassy triangle enclosed by a wrought iron fence and underwent a renovation in 1996 at a cost of $16,000 with a tree, a flagpole, and a monument to the men of Unionport who died in World War I. In parks events, this weekend is the Lunar New Year, and there are multiple ways to celebrate in city parks. In downtown Manhattan at Sarah D. Roosevelt Park will be the Lunar New Year Firecracker Ceremony and Cultural Festival. There will be singing, dancing, confetti cannons, and firecrackers in celebration of the New Year. The main location will be the basketball court in Sarah D. Roosevelt Park at Grand Street on Saturday, January 25th. Also on Saturday, a Lunar New Year celebration in Staten Island at the Snug Harbor Cultural Center. Celebrate the New Year with storytelling, crafts for kids, and a parade in the New York Chinese Scholars Garden where you can hear cymbals, drums, and firecrackers to scare off evil spirits in the new year. There will also be a selection of traditional foods like dumplings, spring rolls, and chrysanthemum tea. The event costs $10 for adults, $7 for children, and children under three are admitted for free. That's Saturday, January 25th, beginning at 11 a.m. at the Snug Harbor Cultural Center. Visit snug-harbor.org for more information. Now let's see where our robot friend will be celebrating this week on the concert calendar.
1: Here's the AGBC concert calendar for the upcoming week. China Crisis is playing The Iridium on Thursday, January 23rd. Pan American and Benwapula are playing public records on Friday, January 24th. Hannah Cohen, Renata Zaguar, and Yumi Ika I are playing the Sultan Room at the Turks Inn on Friday, January 24. Two Dreamers, Ryan De Robertis, DVI, Exit Post, and She Smile are playing Zone One Elsewhere on Saturday, January 25. Laundry Day is playing the Bowery Ballroom on Saturday, January 25. Teddy Swims is playing the Mercury Lounge on Saturday, January 25th at 7 p.m. Matt Carney is playing New York Society for Ethical Culture on Saturday, January 25th at 7 p.m. Billy Joel is playing Madison Square Garden on Saturday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Goose is playing Music Hall of Williamsburg on Saturday, January 25th at 9 p.m. Lauren Elena is playing the Bowery Ballroom on Monday, January 27th at 8 p.m. Fora is playing the Bowery Ballroom on Tuesday, January 28 at 7pm. Bob Mould is playing Iridium Jazz Club on Wednesday, January 29. Francis Quinlan is playing Selena Chelsea on Wednesday, January 29. Peel Dream Magazine, Patty, and Very Nice Massage are playing Babies All Right on Wednesday, January 29. Ali Gady is playing Bowery Ballroom on Wednesday, January 29th at 7 p.m. The Wood Brothers and Cat Wright are playing Webster Hall on Thursday, January 30th at 7 p.m. And Not A Surf is playing Music Hall of Williamsburg on Friday, January 31st. Thanks for listening. Find more fun things to do at greatbigcity.com slash events.
0: Here's something you may not have known about New York. Ward's Point in Tottenville, Staten Island, is the southernmost point of both New York City and New York State. Extreme highs and lows for this week in weather history. There was a record high of 72 degrees on January 26, 1950, and the record low was negative 6 on January 24, 1882. Weather for the week ahead... Partly cloudy most of the week with a chance of rain on Saturday. Temperatures will be in the 40s during the day and down into the 30s at night. Thanks for listening to A Great Big City. Follow along 24 hours a day on social media at A Great Big City or email contact at agreatbigcity.com with any news, feedback, or topic suggestions. Subscribe to A Great Big City News wherever you listen to podcasts: iTunes, Google Play, Player FM. Or listen to each episode on the podcast pages at greatbigcitycom slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. And visit our podcast site to see show notes and extra links for each episode. Our intro and outro music is Start the Day by Lee Rosvere, And the concert calendar music is from JukeDeck.com. Thanks for being part of A Great Big City.
1: Like, boom, boom, da-da-da.